I know is that my real life starts after the show. Show, show, show. He said, I don't see you at the club. I said, I don't see you at the bank. People gotta live their life and do their thing. Let me live, let me breathe, let me be me. He said, I don't see you at the club. I said, I don't see you at the bank. People gotta live their life and do their thing. Let me live, let me breathe, let me be me. Let me live, let me breathe, let me be me. Let me live, let me breathe, let me be me. Let me live, let me breathe, let me be me. Welcome to the Michael Hemhotep Show right here on the Empowerment Radio Network where knowledge is power. Today is uh, Wednesday, March 15th, 2017, and we are live today, Wednesday, March 15th, 2017, and we are live today. Uh, Running late today, uh, a lot going on, a very busy day. And, uh, you know, last night I broadcasted on Facebook Live and uh, we uploaded the podcast to our blog talk radio page. We talked uh, about Rachel Maddow um, releasing Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns, his federal income tax returns. Okay, so on today's show, we'll deal with uh, some of what we learned from Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns. We'll talk some about that. We'll also talk about um, the uh, new evidence in the Michael Brown case. All right, we haven't been able to talk about that here on the show. I did a uh, I did a broadcast about that uh, on Facebook, but we haven't been able to do an actual uh, broadcast about that. Okay, so we'll talk about that some today because there's a new documentary uh, that's out called Stranger Fruit. Stranger Fruit, and in this documentary. They reveal um, never before seen footage by the general public um, about uh, a incident with Michael Brown and people who work at the uh, the uh, convenience store there in Ferguson, Missouri, around 1 a.m. the morning he was killed. He's going to be killed hours later by uh, former um, police officer Darren Wilson. So we'll talk some about that uh, on today's show also. And then um, we'll deal with um, this other story out of North Carolina where you've probably seen the videos of an African-American woman who was attacked by uh, two uh, people who work at the store. I think one person may have been the store owner at this um, Asian-owned beauty supply store in North Carolina. Well, there uh, have been calls for economic boycotts against the store. There are boycotts taking place. And then also, AtlantaBlackStar.com had a video, had an article uh, from today about a video that was shot there yesterday. And you had members of the Nation of Islam uh, who were there confronting the uh, store owner and uh, asking for an apology but also letting them know that the economic boycotts will continue uh, as well uh, without an apology. I think the apology is the first start. I don't think the apology is all they're seeking, but I think an apology is the first start. I watched the video of the attack today, and it's very disturbing, all because they said that this woman had uh, uh, 
had 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 stolen some uh, false eyelashes and put them in her purse. And she told him, you know, I didn't take any, I didn't take anything, I didn't take any eyelashes, what have you. So I, I um, if you're in the North Carolina area on our Facebook fan page, we're we're broadcasting the African History Network. Um, if you're in the uh, North Carolina area, let us know. Are there any other African American owned uh, beauty supply stores in the North Carolina area uh, because the, those are stores we need to support, okay? And let's see, Belinda on Facebook said, can't hear, refresh your, uh, refresh your screen. Um, let me post here, refresh your screen if you can't hear. Okay. All right, so that's what we're going to deal with on today's show. Now, on uh, the Michael M. Hotep show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right knowledge corrects wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the compass of his actions because the mind uh, can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Um, the sign up for our email newsletter. Also, go to, you can go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Sign up for the email newsletter there as well at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. Um, visit our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network. Uh, we're broadcasting live there. And uh, you can watch us there also. Also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TuneIn.com, and Periscope. And Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TuneIn.com, and Periscope at Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. All right. Okay. Um want to remind you, I announced this uh, last night on the broadcast I did last night. We had like 11,000 people who watched it on Facebook. Um, and those watching on Facebook right now, share this, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. Uh, I'm doing a live uh, webinar, another live webinar this weekend. It's going to be a three-part webinar dealing with uh, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school, so it's going to be, uh, it's going to start Sunday, March 19th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Sunday, March 19th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. It's going to be March 19th, March, Sunday, March 19th, Sunday, March 26th. Then that following Saturday, okay, um, in, uh, April. No, no, not that the following, not that, um, the, uh, Saturday, the, the Saturday after that, I think is April 7th, okay? going to be um those three days all right um and it's going to be two hours each and some of you all participated in the uh two hour 
uh, webinar I did um, yeah, Saturday, April 8th, that is, okay, Saturday, April 8th, because April 9th is getting too close to um, Easter, and it's uh, some special, I think it's Palm Sunday, that, that Sunday, April 9th, so we'll do April 8th. Um, some of you uh, registered for the uh, webinar I did uh, a couple weeks ago, that was two hours, two and a half hours, understanding the transatlantic slave trade. This one here is going to be a six-hour course. I'm working on uh, setting up the um, website for the school, all that information. But if you want, if you're interested in this uh, webinar, email me at info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? Now, when we discuss the transatlantic slave trade, we first have to understand that African people are indigenous people to North, Central, and South America. Okay, we've been in the land we call the United States of America at least 51,700 years. We didn't, uh, we didn't come here uh, first uh, during the transatlantic slave trade. Um, we were here tens of thousands of years before that, and this was our land stolen from us. We were here before Native Americans came into existence. Okay, so we, I, I deal with that in the presentation because we have to... Um, lay a, um, a good historical foundation. And then also we deal with Christopher Columbus. And you can't start the transatlantic slave trade. You can't start, you can't start in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. You can't start in the 1440s with, uh, or 1419 for that matter with Prince Henry the Navigator sending ships around the west coast of Africa, um, picking up, uh, slaves. Uh, or, or exploring the west coast of Africa, then later in, the, in around 1441, they're going to start picking up uh, Africans and slaves, just taking them back to Lisbon, Portugal. You can't start there. You have to deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors and what the Moors introduced into Europe and them going into uh, the Iberian Peninsula, today known as Spain and Portugal in 711 A.D., and the technology they introduced, the mathematics, the science, uh, they introduced alcohol, soap, alchemy. They introduced something called alchemy, which today we call chemistry. And what the Moors introduced in Europe is going to set Columbus up to set sail on his four voyages, uh, August 3rd, 1492, when he set sail, sail on the Nina, the and the Santa Maria. And Columbus and his four voyages and the territory he uncovers lays the foundation for slavery racism capitalism and the exploitation of indigenous people okay so i deal with the transatlantic slave trade chronologically i don't deal with it episodically i don't deal with it as an episode in history so um it'll be a, a small donation for the six hour um course it'll be uh, i'm thinking probably about forty dollars for the six hour course and then you'll get a copy of my DVD presentation on understanding the transatlantic slave trade free with that also. So if you're interest, interested in that, this will be a live webinar. You'll be able to ask questions. You can interact through the chat. This will be a live webinar. It starts Sunday, March 19th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. If you miss it, it's not a problem. You can It's recorded. You can go back and watch it over and over and over again. Okay. Email me at info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and we posted it here on the thread of the broadcast as well. Email me at info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com if you're interested in the live webinar I'm doing starting this Sunday, 
March 19, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay? All right. So, last night on the um, Rachel Maddow show, Rachel dealt with um, Donald Trump's 2005 tax returns. Okay? They were given to her by David K. Johnston, uh, who is a David K. Johnston, David C. Uh, David K. Johnston, who is a um, former reporter for the New York Times. He's an investigative reporter. Uh, he's an expert on taxes as well. And they really went through and broke this down last night. Now, some people were looking for a smoking gun. I wasn't necessarily looking for a smoking gun, as I've said before. These are pieces of a of a puzzle that are falling into place and each day more and more pieces of this puzzle fall into place okay so what we found out was that um, in 2005 uh, for the 2005 tax returns he reported about 152 million dollars in income 67 million of that was in rental income about 60 percent more than he reported from his general business interest uh, we found that um, he paid the alternative minimum tax of about $38 million, okay? Um, he had about $103 million in, uh, in losses. He paid uh, $38 million in taxes, approximately. Uh, he paid the alternative minimum tax. Now, right now, he is pushing to get the alternative minimum tax abolished. If it didn't exist back in 2005, he would not have had to pay any taxes on this tax return. This is something that they're talking about. Um, so uh, David K. Johnson is also the founder of DCReport.org. He obtained two pages from what is uh, from what it uh, from what it said were Trump's 2005 uh, 1040 tax form. Um, and uh, let's see, the pages come from a part of the return that does not break down Trump's specific sources of income. One of the things people are looking for who understand this, they're looking for who he's paying interest to, who he's paying loans back to, because they suspect he's paying money back to Russia. OK, and some of it could be illegal money, but they, 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 they suspect he's paying money back to Russia as well, among other among other debtors, okay? Um, let's go to this clip. This is from last night. They're dealing with why presidents release, release tax returns. And I think in this clip, she she talks about why his tax return is so significant because she talks about these other moving pieces and each day more and more pieces uh, of the puzzle are falling into place and a lot of them have to do with Russia. Let's go to this clip. These are returns for one year. It's a federal return. This is the first time we believe any federal tax returns for Donald Trump have been obtained by anyone, certainly by any news organization, since he became a presidential candidate, let alone president. Um, I want to tell you that the way we got this document, the way we got this Trump tax return, is through David K. Johnston. David K. Johnston is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist. He's a specialist on tax issues and on financial reporting. David K. Johnston and his reporting shop, dcreport.org, that's who obtained this return. And tonight, we have this exclusive 
first look at their reporting at what they have obtained. Uh, in just a second, we are going to show you exactly what it is that we've got. We're going to walk through it with David K. Johnston. We're going to get context on it. We're going to get some explanation of what it means. Importantly, we're going to get some explanation and discussion about what further avenues for reporting this may open. Uh, but let me tell you first that, that part of what's very important about this story, about this new document that we're able to bring into public discussion, part of what's most important about it is that for some reason that we cannot discern, this document has been made available. This document has surfaced. It has been handed to a reporter. And that's an important part of this story. That may be the most important part of this story. When Donald Trump declared as a presidential candidate that he would not release his tax returns, he became the first president since the Watergate era to refuse to release his returns. When Richard Nixon said, I'm not a crook, he wasn't talking about Watergate. He was talking about his taxes. And in fact, he was kind of a crook on his taxes. He handed them over in 1973. In April 1974, the IRS ordered him to pay almost a half million dollars in back taxes because, in fact, President Nixon had taken improper deductions and he hadn't paid enough. I mean, that was the least of his problems in the end, but that was, in fact, one of his problems. And presidents and presidential candidates have released their taxes ever since. Donald Trump's opponent in the presidential campaign this past year, Hillary Clinton, she released every year of her tax returns back to 1977. But Donald Trump refused to release any. He made history by insisting that he would not, that indeed he could not release his tax returns. And it never much made sense on factual grounds. When candidate Donald Trump said he would love to release his tax returns, but he couldn't because his tax returns were under audit, that never made sense. Because even the initial precedent for presidents releasing their tax returns, even Richard Nixon was under audit when he released his tax returns. And since we later learned he was cheating on his taxes, it seems like that was maybe an audit well spent. The IRS has, ha, has let, us know, had let it be known that there's, there's no legal reason why somebody under audit can't release their taxes. And in fact, since Watergate, every single president and every single vice president has been audited by the IRS every year of their time in office. And they all still routinely release their tax returns to the public every year. So that excuse from Trump and from the Trump campaign, it never made sense. Being under audit is not an excuse for not releasing your tax returns as a candidate or certainly as president. Also, the audit excuse never made sense for his past tax returns. I mean, even if Donald Trump wanted to release nothing that's under current audit, well, what about years for which the audits are completed and closed? I mean, any year of his taxes before, say, 2008, any year that was audited before then, those years would presumably be done being audited by now. Those would be closed. So why not release those earlier tax returns, even if you don't want to release the current ones, for which there isn't really an excuse not to do anyway? Whether or not you are a supporter of Donald Trump in general, whether or not you care what's in his tax returns, it ought to give you pause that his explanation for why he couldn't release them, why he has to make history by being the first person in decades to hold this office without releasing them, it ought to give you pause that his explanations have never made any factual sense. I mean, think about it. The I'm under audit excuse makes no sense. 
And if the I'm under audit excuse doesn't make any sense, then what does explain why the president hasn't released any tax returns? When you get an excuse from them that doesn't make sense, you have to look for another reason. All right, the stated explanation here makes no sense. What's the real explanation? Well, choose your own adventure. Here's an example. This is a home that Donald Trump purchased in Palm Beach, Florida for just over $40 million in 2004. Less than four years later, a Russian oligarch paid him almost $100 million for that same house. Could Trump tax returns shed light on whether any reasonable outlay of expenses on Trump's part might explain why somebody would suddenly want to pay Donald Trump more than double what he paid for that property after only a few years at a time when housing prices in that area were dropping and not rising. I mean, if this wasn't just some Russian oligarch dumping almost $60 million into Donald Trump's pocket for no discernible reason, couldn't Trump tax returns clear that up? Wouldn't Trump's taxes show whatever reasonable real estate inflow and outflow might explain what otherwise really does look like a bizarre dump of tens of millions of dollars of Russian money into Donald Trump's coffers? Right at a time when Donald Trump owed tens of millions of dollars to Deutsche Bank and Deutsche Bank was breathing down his neck to get it. That Russian oligarch who spent all that money on that property and, and, and then never moved into it and ultimately tore it down. Uh, he's also a large shareholder in a bank called the Bank of Cyprus, which has been implicated in Russian money, money laundering. The chairman of the Bank of Cyprus is the former CEO of Deutsche Bank, to which Donald Trump owed all that money at the time he conveniently got this very large influx of cash from a Russian guy. The vice chairman of that bank until recently was our new Secretary of Commerce, longtime Trump friend Wilbur Ross. Couldn't the tax returns sort this out for us? If there are inexplicable dumps of foreign money into the president's coffers that cannot be explained in normal business terms, that's potentially a huge problem for somebody who's serving as president of the United States, right? I mean, the, the interest in Trump's tax returns is not a picky thing. It's not a partisan thing. If, if people, if interests have inexplicably given him a lot of money in recent years, why did they do it? What do they want for that money now? Is the president in a position where we need to watch to make sure he is not paying off his past benefactors with our country's resources, with U.S. policy, with decisions that he can make as president? That's part of why we need to see his tax returns. And I raise this issue of this particular Russian oligarch, uh, Dmitry Rybolovyev. I've been practicing. Rybolovyev. 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 Dmitry Rybolovyev, the guy who paid Trump all that money for that house. I raise him only as an example because we haven't had any meaningful financial disclosures, any tax returns from the president. And because of that, this Russian oligarch is just one of the continuing sources of intrigue about whether our president now has foreign ties that could conceivably be motivating his actions as president. And I say it's ongoing concerns because it is ongoing concerns. It's not just interesting stuff that happened in his past that we have to worry about in the past. I mean, during the presidential campaign, Dmitry Rybolovyev's private plane was spotted at least twice at local airports when Donald Trump campaign events were happening nearby. At least once, his private plane was spotted on the tarmac right alongside Donald Trump's private plane while Donald Trump was doing a campaign event. Rivlovyev insists to us that that is a coincidence, but tonight the Palm Beach Post reports that this weekend Rivlovyev's yacht 
was parked alongside the yacht that's owned by Robert Mercer, who is the single largest financial backer of the Trump for President effort, the single largest financial backer of Breitbart, and the person who basically installed both Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon at the top of the Trump campaign after Paul Manafort was fired for his ties. Okay, so let me pause it right here. So you've heard me talk about Robert Mercer here on the show. Robert Mercer was one of the main financiers of Donald Trump's campaign. Robert Mercer is the, basically the chief financier of Breitbart News. Kellyanne Conway, before she was working for the Trump campaign, she was running Robert Mercer's super PAC that his family created. OK, Kellyanne Conway, who, who's now senior advisor to the president, she came from Robert Mercer. David Bossy, who was the deputy campaign manager under Kellyanne Conway, before he became deputy campaign manager, he was running Robert Mercer's super PAC. OK, now you've got this article from Palm Beach Post. Uh, let me pull it up. We've got it right here. Uh, uh palmbeachpost.com okay my palmbeachpost.com this is the article Rachel Maddow just talked about yachts of Trump financial backer Russian oligarch seen close together yachts of Trump financial backer Russian oligarch seen close together now this article is from yesterday okay it's, it's from March 14th Tuesday they updated it today Wednesday March 15th at 2.42 p.m. Now, in the article, it says the coincidences are piling up. Russian oligarch Dmitry Rebolovich, uh last week disavowed any contact with President Donald Trump. Okay? Now, this is the guy. Donald Trump sold this guy a mansion for $95 million. This guy, Dmitry Rebolovich, who's a Russian billionaire, he bought the house for more than double what it's worth. So people are asking the question, well, wait a second, these pieces keep falling into place and they're asking, was this some type of payoff in the in it disguised as him buying real estate? Because the guy never lived. He, he buys his house for ninety five million dollars. He never lives in the house. Then he tears the house down. He buys the house for more than double what it's worth. So for people who say, oh, we didn't learn anything from the tax returns. Well, you haven't been studying this. Because the people who understand this stuff, they say, wait a second, these pieces keep falling, falling into place. The tax returns caused more, tax returns last night caused more questions to come about. But no, we learned some things. This is why Rachel Maddow is going, laying this context for the tax returns to be revealed. Now, it says, but speculation again was stoked when the state of the art yacht uh, Anna, name of the yacht is Anna, sat anchored in the British Virgin Islands on Friday night and another equally resplendent luxury liner called the Sea Owl uh, 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 pulled up to it according to a website that tracks the movement of yachts. After disavowing any contact with President Donald Trump this past week, Russian oligarch Dmitry Rebolovich his state-of-the-art yacht called Anna sat anchored in the British Virgin Islands on Friday night when another equally uh, resplendent liner, the, uh, the uh, Sea Owl, uh, pulled up to it. Okay, uh, they, they have that paragraph twice. Now, the owner of the dark-hulled yacht, 
uh, President Trump's biggest financial supporter and Breitbart, Breitbart News money man. His name is Robert Mercer. And we talked about Robert Mercer here on the show before. Now, Dmitry Bolivov has repeatedly said he has never met Trump or had any dealings with anyone in his campaign. Now, the oligarch did purchase a Palm Beach mansion from Donald Trump in 2008 through a family trust. Okay, uh, this was according to Dmitry Bolivov's uh, spokespeople. Now, within days of the election this past year, November 8th election, Trump and Wabolovov, their jets were parked on the airport apron in Charlotte, North Carolina on November 3rd, 2016. Trump had a campaign rally that day in Concord, uh, North Carolina. Uh, Dimitri said he was there for business. Now, since the CIA and FBI said Russia launched a campaign to interfere with the U.S. election in an attempt to benefit Donald Trump, ties between one of America's longtime nemesis, Russia, and the president have surfaced on several fronts, including Dmitry Rebolovov. Now, Russia is the top suspect in hacking the emails of the DNC Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign, which were, which were released through WikiLeaks. The president's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, who he had to fire, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and former campaign advisor Carter Page all have had interactions with Russians, Russian officials, specifically uh, Sergey Kislyak, the R Russian ambassador to the U.S. Now, Donald Trump has business ties with Russians who develop properties with him in Fort Lauderdale in New York. There is also a possible connection through Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, which... Um, Rachel Maddow talked about Wilbur Ross, who's just confirmed as Commerce Secretary. Uh, he was part. He he had part ownership. Well, he he had he uh, has part. He had part ownership in Bank of Cyprus, which has ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin. So you keep seeing these pieces, these moving pieces. The pieces are falling into place, and a lot of these pieces are connected to Russia. Now, Dmitry Rebolovov also owns shares in the bank, in the in the Bank of Cyprus. W Wilbur Ross also has a home on Paul, Palm Beach where Donald Trump owns the Mar-a-Lago Resort. OK, now dubbed the Winter White House. Then there is the Deutsche Bank connection. Deutsche Bank. And she talks about this. Rachel Maddow talks about this in the piece. Now, Deutsche Bank. This is somebody. Uh. Uh, U.S. Attor U.S. Attorney uh, Preet uh, Barara. Preet Barara was uh, he was involved in the lawsuit against Deutsche Bank, from my understanding, because Deutsche Bank had to pay seven billion dollars in fines, okay, to the U.S. government. They had to pay seven billion dollars, and they got and they were caught up in a Russian money laundering scheme, and Preet Barara was the U.S. attorney involved in that case. Okay? He got fired Saturday by Donald Trump. So all this stuff is tied to Russia. So then there's the Deutsche Bank connection. The former CEO now runs the bank. The former CEO uh, uh, of Deutsche Bank now runs the Bank of Cyprus. 
Okay, Deutsche Bank is is Donald Trump's top creditor to the tune of about three hundred million dollars. Deutsche Bank just paid four hundred and twenty five million dollars fines to the state of New York for laundering ten billion dollars in Russian money. The U.S. attorney for uh, part of New York was Preet Bharara, who was involved in that case. So you start seeing all these pieces fall into place and they're all dealing with Russia. Okay? Let me repeat this. Deutsche Bank just paid $425 million in fines to the state of New York for laundering $10 billion in Russian money. Okay? Now one of the president's chief financial backers during the campaign has been spotted with one-tenth of a nautical mile of Russian oligarch Dmitry Rabolovich in the aquamarine waters of the Caribbean. The yachts stayed near each other on Saturday, then later motored away from each other, but were in the same vicinity during the weekend. Okay, read the rest of this article because you, you these pieces each day, more of these pieces of this puzzle are coming into place. Okay, and it. <laughs> And, and it doesn't look good. Each day, more and more of these pieces of this puzzle are falling into place. All right. So once again, name of this article. This is from uh, my Palm Beach Post, uh, palmbeachpost.com. Yachts of Trump, financial backer, Russian oligarch seen close together. All right. We're going to post this. Uh, on the thread of the broadcast here. Now those watching share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. Okay. Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in as well. Okay. Welcome back from the break. Hey, we want to let you know that the um, Hidden Colors Family Bundle Pack is available right now. You get 20% off. Uh, use promo code March 2017 promo. March 2017 promo. Okay. Uh, you get all four installments of the Hidden Colors Family Bundle Pack. I mean, all four installments of Hidden Colors, the best-selling uh, uh, documentary series dealing with African history and African-American history. And you'll get four of my DVD presentations, and uh, you'll get one installment of Afro Man and the Protectors of the Book of Knowledge also. We have orders shipping out tomorrow, okay? Uh, so we just posted the information there. Click on the link. You can order that today. We have orders shipping out tomorrow. And then also, if you're interested in, in signing up for the, uh, if you're interested, if you want to get information about the live webinar I'm doing this Sunday, March 19th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m., Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, What They Didn't Teach You in School. This is going to be a, uh, it's going to be over three days. It's going to be a six hour course, Mar uh, Sunday, March 19th, Sunday, March 26th, and then um, April 8th, I think it is, uh, sat sat is a Saturday, uh, uh, following Saturday, uh, uh, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. It's going to be a six hour course. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. If you are uh, interested in, in more information on that, email me at info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay? And uh, share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in uh, to the show also. All right, and we're broadcasting on uh, TuneIn.com as well, TuneIn.com. 
Um, download the TuneIn Radio app to your smartphone. Search for Empowerment Radio Network, Empowerment Radio Network, or go to TuneIn.com, TuneIn.com, and search for Empowerment Radio Network on TuneIn.com as well, okay? Uh, remember, all these shows are podcasts. We're going to go back to this uh, clip from the Rachel Maddow show in just a second. Remember, all these shows uh, are podcasted at um, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, okay, our website. And... Um, we, uh, yesterday's, uh, I did a podcast yesterday night right before the Rachel Maddow show. We uploaded that, uh, that's on audio podcast as well and rebroadcasting on Facebook Live. So you can check out, check out those podcasts. Okay. Uh, very quickly here, uh, I want to get some of your comments before we, we get too, um, before your comments get too old. Um, Phyllis Stevens said, if something happens to 45, we in deep. Because Pence is uh, who they really want. Well, Pence is much worse. But my argument is a whole team got in illegally and under false pretenses. So you have to take the whole team out. That's my argument. It ain't just one person. It's the he won the presidency under false pretenses with the help of Russian hacking and voter suppression. He won based upon false pretenses. So my argument is is that you have to take the whole team out, just like if you have a relay team in track and field or something like that, in track and field, and they win gold, the Olympic gold medal, and you find out that one uh, of the people on the four-team relay or something like that, you find out one tested positive for uh, uh, steroids, right? Uh, they take the title from, they take the first place in the gold medals back from that team. And then the team that came in second place, they're declared the winners. All right. So my thing is, same thing should apply here. This whole team got in under false pretenses. All right. And as more and more information comes out, we're going to find that out. The whole team is dirty. All right. Uh, Denise Thompson said 45 is crooked. Yeah, that's right. Um, Lorraine Huff said Deutsche Bank hands were in government student loans. If you consolidated your student loans in the mid-2000s, Deutsche Bank was your bank and Sally Mae was your servicer. This thing goes deeper than Trump. Yeah, I believe it goes deeper than Trump. Uh, Joanne Ann said um, uh, the issue is he must show the entire tax return and that could uh, that coupled with his outward dealings will uh, be the ball breaker for 45. Uh, Rosalind Williams said, watch Rachel Maddow. She's very informative. Yeah, 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday, MSNBC. Um, Phyllis Stevens said, the first eight presidents were black. They are not acknowledged. Okay, show me what evidence you're citing that the first eight presidents were black. I'll wait. Show me what evidence are you citing that the first eight presidents are black? Are you talking about under the Continental Congress? Or are you talking about under the U.S. Constitution? Even under the Continental Congress, show me what evidence you're citing that the first eight presidents. Because John Hanson, there were two John Hansons. This, this is a mistake people make. There was a white senator from Maryland who was the president of the Continental Congress from 1781 to 1782, and he dies. The black John Hanson was a senator of Liberia. The picture that you, the, the, the photograph that you see of him is, is from around uh, approximately around 1856 or so, around 1856. And that is a photograph taken with a Degora type camera, which was 
the first photographic camera, which was in, which was invented by John de Gore type in the late 1820s, and it wasn't available for commercial use to the 1830s. That picture is from the uh, 1850s. It's on the it's on the uh, Library of Congress's website. The picture of the Black John Hanson. You talking about two different people? Okay, the photograph that's taken was uh, that photograph was taken about. Uh, uh, about 80, uh, about uh, uh, 70 years after the white John Hansen dies. So what evidence are you citing that the first eight presidents were, were black? Please show me. I'll wait. Okay, let's go back to this clip here from um, the Rachel Maddow show. This is from last night. She's breaking this stuff down. So when she talks about these different articles, because what I do when they talk about these different articles on MSNBC, a lot of times I'll go research these articles. And these are some of the articles I deal with on the show. The one from MyPalmBeachPost.com. This is one of the ones she talked about last night on the show. I do the same thing with Joanne Reed. And some of the other shows, when they, when they show different articles, I make a note of them, go research a lot of those articles. So let's go back to this clip. Once his private plane was spotted on the tarmac right alongside Donald Trump's private plane while Donald Trump was doing a campaign event. Rivlevyev insists to us that that is a coincidence, but tonight the Palm Beach Post reports that this weekend Rivlevyev's yacht was parked alongside the yacht that's owned by Robert Mercer, who is the single largest financial backer of the Trump for President effort, the single largest financial backer of Breitbart, and the person who basically installed both Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon at the top of the Trump campaign after Paul Manafort was fired for his ties to Russia and Ukraine. Dmitry Rybolovyev uh, denies to us tonight that he has had anything to do with Robert Mercer or with Donald Trump other than paying him almost $60 million over the price Trump paid for that one house. But once you're the president of the United States, the people of the United States need to know if you've got significant unexplained sources of income, particularly of income that has a foreign origin. Hence the need to see Trump's tax returns, hence the appetite for it. Has he received money from foreign sources? Has he received loans from foreign sources? One of the things you have to declare on your U.S. federal taxes is whether you have paid taxes in foreign countries. Does the president have foreign bank accounts? If so, which banks? The more I know about the Bank of Cyprus, for example, the more I want to know about whether there are other ties, uh, other Trump ties to that troubled bank, aside from his hand-picked commerce secretary and the guy who inexplicably paid him all that money for that house and the newly installed chairman from the bank that holds more of his debt than any other financial institution. When the Trump administration, when, when the president and his attorney general inexplicably moved on Friday to fire all of the U.S. attorneys, all of a sudden, on Friday, no warning, get out, you're done by midnight. The Preet Bharara firing in New York was of note and particular concern because President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions had both previously told Preet Bharara he could continue to hold that job. It is a particularly newsworthy firing that they did an unexplained U-turn on that because of Barrara's jurisdiction. Barrara's office is pursuing a federal case against Deutsche Bank for Russian money laundering. That office also has jurisdiction, geographical jurisdiction, over Trump Tower and the Trump Organization. Ethics watchdogs last week wrote to Preet Barrara asking him to investigate whether the president was receiving money from foreign governments through his business, 
through the Trump Organization. If he is receiving any income that originates with foreign governments, that would be unconstitutional. Two days after receiving that letter from those ethics watchdogs groups, ethics watchdog groups asking him to look into that possibility, Preet Bharara was told to resign. The day after that, after he refused to resign, he was fired. These are the reasons why people have wanted to see the president's tax returns. What is his relationship with Deutsche Bank? What is his relationship with foreign sources of income? Okay, now let me pause it right there. So NPR.org, NPR had an article from last week, Wednesday, March 8th, 2017. Ethics watchdogs want U.S. attorney to investigate Trump's business interests. This is dealing with Preet Bharara. Ethics watchdogs want U.S. attorney to investigate Trump's business interests. Okay, so what happened was you had three, um, you had uh, three organizations, and we have some. I have some other articles on this also because I talked about this Sunday on my show, and we're waiting for Facebook to reconnect. Um, you had. Let's see here. Let's look at these. Trump U.S. Ash Attorney Sessions, Justice Department. Okay. And we're waiting for it to reconnect on Facebook. Um, yeah. So in that letter, three government accountability groups asked Barrara to investigate whether Trump had violated the Constitution by receiving cash from foreign governments through his extensive business holdings, okay? Now, this is an article from thinkprogress.org. The ranking oversight committee member is suspicious of the U.S. attorney fire of the U.S. attorney firing. This is about Representative Elijah Cummings, and he, he was interviewed by George Stephanopoulos uh, this past Sunday, um, Mark, uh, this past Sunday, March 12th. Okay, the ranking oversight committee member is suspicious of the U.S. attorney firing. All right. So, uh, okay. All right. So, we had, uh, okay, back on Facebook. It was uh, reconnecting, timing out, whatever, but we're back, okay? All right. So, check out this article from NPR.org, okay? Ethics watchdogs want U.S. attorney to investigate Trump's business interests. This is from NPR.org. This is from last Wednesday, March 8th. And they talk about, I saw articles about this last Wednesday because the Washington Post had one uh, as well. But what happened was you had these, and um, you had these uh, government, three government accountability um, organizations. They sent a letter to U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara asking him to investigate the business practices of Donald Trump and many of Donald Trump's business interests to see if they violated the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution, which is Article 1, Section 9, which deals with a sitting president getting uh, any type of gifts, financial compensation, etc., from foreign governments. They wanted him, they wanted Preet Bharara to investigate this. Well, he received that letter on Wednesday. By Friday, 
they're asking for the resignation of all the remaining 46 U.S. attorneys. These people were holdovers from the Obama administration. On Saturday, he gets fired. Okay? So all this stuff is connected. Well, Preparara was investigating Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is the bank that Donald Trump owes the most money to. Okay? Deutsche Bank. Um, now, read the, uh, read the article from uh, the New York Times, uh, January 30th, 2017. Deutsche Bank fined and planned to help Russians launder $10 billion. Deutsche Bank fined and planned to help Russians launder $10 million. Deutsche Bank agreed on, now this article is from January 4th, 2017. Deutsche Bank agreed on Monday to pay $425 million, uh, a $425 million fine, million dollar fine to New York State's main financial regulator to settle charges that it helped Russian investors launder as much as $10 billion through its branches in Moscow, London, and New York. Okay? Um, the punishment represents the largest regulatory black eye for Deutsche Bank, Germany's largest, okay, Germany's largest bank. In the last decade, it has been implicated in several financial scandals, including pushing toxic mortgages on investors and manipulating London's main lending rate for its own financial gain. Deutsche Bank also agreed to pay 163 million pounds or approximately 204 million dollars in civil penalties in a separate uh, settlement with the Financial Conduct Authority of Britain in the matter. The bank and the regulator uh, stated on Tuesday. All right. Now, um, in its investigation, the New York State Department of Financial Services found that between 2011 and 2015, a group of Deutsche Bank executives based mainly in Moscow and London helped wealthy Russians send money overseas, arranging stock trades that had no economic purpose other than disguising what the client was doing. So they're laundering money. Deutsche Bank got caught up in this. All right. Now. Um, let's see here. All right, let's go back to this clip, Prosecutor Fileys. Okay, uh, we're going to look at this article here from CNNMoney.com also in just a minute. All right, but when you go back and look at the article from MyPalmBeachPost.com, they talk about Deutsche Bank in here. They talk about they, they're connecting the dots is what Rachel Maddow was doing, connecting the dots. All right. Deutsche Bank is the is the bank that Donald Trump owes the most money to. So with uh, uh, Preet Bharara investigating Deutsche Bank, it may be a feather in Donald Trump's cap if he could fire this guy to get them get him off of Deutsche Bank's back. This is why we need to see this bastard's tax returns. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to call. I I mean to call him a bastard. I'm sorry. All right. Okay. Let's go back to this clip here. Explicably moved on Friday to fire all of the U.S. attorneys. Does the president have foreign bank accounts? If so, which banks? The more I know about the Bank of Cyprus, for example, the more I want to know about whether there are other ties. Uh, other Trump ties to that troubled bank, aside from his hand-picked commerce secretary and the guy who inexplicably paid him all that money for that house and the newly installed chairman from the bank that holds more of his debt than any other financial institution.
When the Trump administration, when, when the president and his attorney general inexplicably moved on Friday to fire all of the U.S. attorneys, all of a sudden, on Friday, no warning, get out, you're done by midnight. The Preet Bharara firing in New York was of note and particular concern because President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions had both previously told Preet Bharara he could continue to hold that job. It is a particularly newsworthy firing that they did an unexplained U-turn on that because of Bharara's jurisdiction. Bharara's office is pursuing a federal case against Deutsche Bank for Russian money laundering. That office also has jurisdiction, geographical jurisdiction, over Trump Tower and the Trump Organization. Ethics watchdogs last week wrote to Preet Bharara asking him to investigate whether the president was receiving money from foreign governments through his business, through the Trump Organization. If he is receiving any income that originates with foreign governments, that would be unconstitutional. Two days after receiving that letter from those ethics watchdogs groups, ethics watchdog groups asking him to look into that possibility, Preet Bharara was told to resign. Okay, let me back this up just a minute here. I want to check something. Firing in New York was of note and particular concern because President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions had both previously told Preet Bharara he could continue to hold that job. It is a particularly newsworthy firing that they did an unexplained U-turn on that because of Bharara's jurisdiction. Bharara's office is pursuing a federal case against Deutsche Bank for Russian money laundering. That office also has jurisdiction, geographical jurisdiction, over Trump Tower and the Trump Organization. Ethics watchdogs last week wrote to Preet Bharara asking him to investigate whether the president was receiving money from foreign governments through his business, through the Trump Organization. If he is receiving any income that originates with foreign governments, that would be unconstitutional. Two days after receiving that letter from those ethics watchdogs groups, ethics watchdog groups asking him to look into that possibility, Preet Bharara was told to resign. The day after that, after he refused to resign, he was fired. These are the reasons why people have wanted to see the president's tax returns. What is his relationship with Deutsche Bank? What is his relationship with foreign sources of income? Is he receiving any money through his business from foreign sources? Is he receiving any money through his business or through any of his real estate deals that can be traced back to, to foreign governments? I mean, his tax returns should show any income he has received from investment partnerships. This strange-shaped building was a, a Trump project in Azerbaijan, where the Trump Organization partnered with, a family, with, with family members of a notoriously corrupt Azerbaijani government official who also has had business ties to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The president's tax returns are of interest because if he has received income from foreign sources, as he did in that Azerbaijan deal, the origin of that income may have national security implications. If by any chance it follows those same contours back to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which is a sanctioned organization in this country because of its links to global terrorism. The unanswered questions around Michael Flynn the fired former national security advisor. He last week retroactively registered as a foreign agent. He declared retroactively that he worked during the campaign and during the transition as a lobbyist for the interests of the government of Turkey. We still do not understand why the Trump administration hired him to be national security advisor after they were advised that he was working for a foreign power. 
we still do not understand their caginess around Flynn and his firing. Why, for example, the White House said they fired Flynn because he lied to the vice president, but they didn't fire him until almost three weeks after they learned about those lies. We still have no idea why the vice president says he was completely unaware that Flynn was on the Turkish government payroll. Because he, as head of the transition, was repeatedly notified about it, including by Flynn's own lawyers. So why would he say now that he had no idea, he'd never heard of it until this past week? What explains the Trump administration's caginess around Michael Flynn, and specifically around Michael Flynn's financial ties to Turkey? Well, you know what? It would be helpful to see the tax returns. I mean, what kind of income has, has Trump Towers Istanbul provided to President Trump? through his business. Is any of that income for the president from the Turkish government? Did Turkey have a financial relationship with the president? Do they continue to have a financial relationship with the president? Is there anything about the president's financial and business entanglements that is potentially driving presidential actions around the issue of Turkey, the unexplained questions and caginess that is yet to be explained around the issue of Michael Flynn and his firing? There are definitely um, personality-driven and petty reasons to seek the president's tax returns. Is he not as rich as he says he is? Is he not as charitable as he says he is? Was he, in fact, under audit when he was using that as an excuse to not release his tax returns? Was that worse than just a bad excuse? Was he really being audited? There's small reasons to be interested, right? But whether it's for small reasons or big reasons, there has been an unrelenting demand by people to see his tax returns. More than a million people have signed the White House petition demanding that he release his tax returns. In 19 states, legislation has now been filed that would actually keep him off the ballot in 2020 unless he releases his tax returns before the re-election campaign. On tax day this year, Next month in Chicago, activists are raising money right now to fly a 16-foot inflatable chicken with Trump's hairdo <laughs> over their tax day protest as a helium balloon. They're demanding that the president stop being so chicken about releasing his tax returns. Literally today in Missouri, these protesters were outside Senator Roy Blunt's office demanding that the president release his tax returns. It's that sign in the front there says, says, is your refund listed in U.S. dollars or in rubles? There's a reason that people unrelentingly want to see his tax returns. There is a reason there are decades of precedent for presidents and presidential candidates all releasing them. There is genuine curiosity as to whether he will bear out what he has said about himself in terms of his income. Honestly, there's genuine concern as to whether he will pursue tax policies that are designed to personally benefit himself and his family, which we won't know about until we've seen his tax returns. There are also concerns just about bookkeeping. There's reason for concern about whether in his FEC financial disclosure form, which is all we've got from him, there's reason for concern. Reasons, there are indications in the paperwork that he may have given wildly inflated valuations of the worth of his, his golf course properties abroad. When you compare what he said in that FEC document versus the tax filings he made on those properties in the UK, where he declared them all as losing money. Incidentally, lying to the FEC is a crime for which you can go to prison for five years. But with all of that, the concerns about whether he's going to be self-dealing in his tax policies, concerns about whether he might have lied or misrepresented his own financial circumstance during the campaign, 
concerns about whether or not he might have misstated things to the FEC. With all of that, there looms over all of this the big national security worry, right? The big almost existential worry. The greater concern, the worry that this president may be financially beholden to an individual, to an institution, to a country. And now that he's president, we won't know if he tries to use the resources and power of our country to pay off that entity to whom he is beholden. We can't know any of that without getting his tax returns. That's why presidents release their tax returns. That's why there will continue to be unrelenting pressure to find Donald Trump's tax returns, to expose Donald Trump's tax returns. And that pressure will remain every single day that he remains as president. Unless and until he releases them, the pressure will never let up. And that's why somebody, why we... Okay, so let's go to this next clip. That clip was why presidents release their tax returns. See, this is this is very very deep. So today he was in Ypsilanti, Michigan. They had they went to MSNBC. They went to a local diner. They were interviewing some people there. A bunch of white people there. So you had this one older white male. Uh, he said he was a Trump supporter. He said he didn't care about Trump's tax returns, things like this. Well, you have a lot of these ignorant people who don't understand the significance of tax returns. They get most of their information from Fox News. They sit up and watch Fox News all day. Half of them don't know how to use the Internet, so they don't they don't have Internet. They don't use the Internet. They just sit up and watch. Okay, and, and a lot of them are ignorant, okay, and don't understand this. All right, so let's go to this other clip here. This deals with uh, them breaking down the tax returns. And then it's almost 7 o'clock, and I have to get to bed early tonight. I have to get ready. I have to do my segment uh, tomorrow morning, early in the morning, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. on Wake Up With Steve Hood, 9, 10 a.m. the Superstation. So these other topics we may have to get to. We, we got to get to these other topics tomorrow. I'm not going to get to. I don't have the time or the energy to get through these other topics uh let me see we'll see what we can do but no nah, I, I gotta get to this stuff tomorrow i want to get to this right now though the rest of the stuff rest of the stuff we have to get to tomorrow because there's a lot of it tomorrow morning i'm dealing with um holidays we don't understand and then also we're going to deal with uh, the 52nd anniversary of bloody sunday which was uh, the march from Selma to Montgomery. The, that was the attempted march to Selma to Montgomery. It was stopped, and then they're going to have the march a couple weeks later. Um, that was March 7th, 1965. We'll deal with that also. So we'll broadcast on Facebook Live. Hey, listen to uh, Wake Up With Steve Hood. I'm on every Thursday morning, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation. 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation um, in Detroit. Just... Uh, uh, go to uh, 910amsuperstation.com. Well, actually, if you go to our website, africanhistorynetwork.com, africanhistorynetwork.com, uh, right on the homepage it has information uh, about the African History Network show on 910am Superstation. That's my Sunday night show. Just click right there on that link, and it has the information how to listen to the show, okay, because you can listen from around the world. All right, so let's go to this clip here. This is dealing with uh, actually explaining Donald Trump's 2005 um, tax returns. Let's go to this clip. 
have here uh, is a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns. We have his federal tax return for one year, for 2005. I believe this is the only set of the president's federal taxes that reporters have ever gotten a hold of. Uh, what we have are these two pages, front and back, from the same 1040 form that you might have filled out when you file your taxes. Um, and in terms of what's on here, let me give you the basics. Um, aside from the numbers being large, uh, these pages are straightforward. He paid uh, $38 million, looks like $38 million in taxes. Uh, he took a big write-down of $103 million, more on that later. Uh, if you add up the lines for income, he made more than $150 million in that year, mazel tov. Uh, we got these pages. We got this document today from a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who's better on financial matters than almost anybody else in the business. His name is David K. Johnston. Uh, these pages turned up the other day in his mailbox. David will join us live here in just a moment. Um, but because nobody has had the president's taxes before, we didn't know what to expect. Um, when we showed this 2005 return to the White House to ask him if it's real, uh, we sent this over to the White House tonight, and the White House responded basically with, yep. Uh, I'm going to read you the, the White House statement on this tonight. Quote, before being elected president, Mr. Trump was one of the most successful businessmen in the world, with the responsibility to his company, his family, and his employees to pay no more tax than legally required. That being said, Mr. Trump paid $38 million, even after taking into account large-scale depreciation for construction on an income of more than $150 million, as well as paying tens of millions of dollars in other taxes, such as sales and excise taxes and employment taxes. And this illegally published return proves just that. Despite the substantial income figure and tax paid, it is totally illegal to steal and publish tax returns. The dishonest media can continue to make this part of their agenda, while the president will focus on his, which includes tax reform that will benefit all Americans. White House statement for tonight. For the record, the First Amendment gives us the right to publish this return. It is not illegally published. Nor are we fake. Pinch me. I'm real. But good on the White House. Uh, for acknowledging the return um, as proof of what the president made and paid that year. Uh, here's the thing, though. A full tax return for someone like Donald Trump would be a lot longer than the two pages that we have here. There are all kinds of schedules and notes and attachments that could be involved, all containing information about the president and his money. Why will he not release his taxes, his full taxes? the way other presidents have done. Why not let the public see the information for themselves? We have obtained this, but this is all we've got. This tells us something, but he still has disclosed, uh, certainly willingly disclosed, nothing compared to all other modern presidents. Joining us now is David K. Johnston. He's editor and founder of DCReport.org, which has posted this document as of a few minutes ago. He's also the author of The Making of Donald Trump and the Pulitzer Prize-winning financial reporter uh, who found the president's 2005 tax returns in his mailbox. David, thank you for being here. Delighted. Um, first of all, congratulations on this, this scoop. What can you tell us about how how you got these pages, how you got this document. Same in the mail over the transom. And there is absolutely nothing improper about journalists, if you haven't solicited something, uh, getting it over the transom. And by the way, let me point out, it's entirely possible that Donald sent this to me. Donald Trump has, over the years, leaked all sorts of things. The uh, very sleazy girl-on-girl -girl pictures of the First Lady in the New York Post may have come from Donald. The uh, front pages of the state tax returns that we had 
that were sent to the New York Times and the New York Daily News last fall may have come from Donald. Donald has a long history of leaking material about himself when he thinks it's in his interests. Um, do you believe, do we have reason to believe that those documents that you just described there were leaked by him, or is it just a possibility? It, it's a possibility, and it, it could have been leaked by someone in his direction. Mm -hmm. But with Donald, you know, you never know. Donald creates his own reality, and uh, he, he says things that aren't true. He says things and then denies he said them. He lives in this world that isn't the world of you and, where you and I live of verifiable facts. So, yes, I think I have to include that in the list of possibilities of where it came from. Mm -hmm. When you look at this document, when you look at these, uh, these numbers, obviously we don't have the supporting uh, schedules and sort of appendices right. that you get in, in big tax returns. Um, do these numbers seem right to you? Obviously the yes. White House statement to us is, is reiterating the $150 million income number and the $38 million paid number. Those, those numbers seem right to you? Yes. And... and uh, uh, they fit the things we know from other public records about how Donald does business. For example, the dividends that he gets are primarily not what are called qualified dividends. That suggests they come from not big companies like ExxonMobil, but uh, privately held enterprises. Uh, they show almost no tax-exempt interest, about $49,000. That would imply at the time maybe $900,000 of municipal bonds. Not much. I mean, there are lots of college professors out there my age who have $900,000 in municipal bonds. Um, what's most important about this tax return, though, Rachel, is that under the regular tax system, remember we have two tax systems, well-to-do people, you and I, file, effectively calculate our tax twice, the regular tax system and the alternative minimum tax. If we didn't have the alternative minimum tax and Donald Trump, in writing, wants to end the alternative minimum tax, he would have paid taxes at a lower rate than the bottom half of taxpayers, the poor in this country who make less than $33,000. Now think about that. On $153 million almost of income, he would have paid a little over $5 million, less than 3.5%, less than the half of taxpayers who make under $33,000. As it is, because of the alternative minimum tax, he paid $36.5 million, not the 38 the White House statement says. They're counting his self-employment tax, which is uh, payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, $36.5 he paid 24%. You know who pays 24% in this country? Married couples with two incomes, like my wife and I, who make about $400,000 a year. Donald Trump and his wife that year made $418,000 a day. And the point of this is, the top in this country, people at the top, are not burdened the way we suggest. I was in... Uh, let me, let me yeah, stop, let me stop yeah. you and let me restate some of that back to you because sure. you're a tax expert and those of us who just pay taxes and aren't experts in them, I want to say it back to you and you tell me if I'm getting it right. If there weren't something called the alternative minimum tax, you can tell from, these, from this 1040, from these two pages from his tax return in 2005, if there weren't an alternative minimum tax, he'd be paying what percent? It's right on line 44. He would have paid $5.3 million, which is 24% of his $152.7 million of positive income. Um, and that's in large part because he was able to say he had negative income of $103 million. Okay. So because he paid, because there is an alternative minimum tax. They disregarded most of the negative income. Yeah. He had to pay taxes, he had to pay more in taxes, but he still got a benefit. You know why? Because at the top, 
people are supposed to be paying 35% that year, 39.6% this year. Ah. But if you're in the alternative minimum tax, you only pay 28%. Okay. That's a 20% discount on your taxes. Would you like to get a 20% discount on your taxes? That's what Donald Trump got here. So the issue that, I mean, I, I tried to lay out at the top of the show reasons why people are so interested in his tax returns. The White House has made this issue and saying it's only reporters who care. People don't care. This was litigated in the election when he didn't release his tax returns and people voted for him anyway. There are a number of reasons to be interested in his tax returns. And I think a number of reasons why people continue to and, be. And most importantly, what we don't have here, which is this describes the types of income but not the sources. Okay, so That's what we need to know. We need Who to, is the president getting money from? Well, we need to know, A, sources of his income, whether or not he's beholden to somebody. We also need to know whether all the things he said about himself and his wealth uh, and his charitableness and all those things are true. But we also need to know if he is going to take actions as president in terms of tax policy that are going to benefit him. And you're or saying, benefit his benefactors. Yes. Yes, I mean, it's a very complicated, tangled issue. I mean, here's a simple question to ask. Every other president's released their returns. We have uh, Hillary Clinton's and Bill Clinton's returns back to the 1970s. Why is it that Donald Trump is so insistent that we're not to see his tax returns? What, there must be something uh, hiding in his returns. You know, I've been at this for 50 years. I started as a teenager doing investigative reporting. And every time some high-level politician wants to hide something, it always turns out there's a reason. They've got something to hide. Um, I have I, lots of things we can think of that Donald Trump has to hide. Uh, including sources of income and his connections to the Russian oligarchs, who are essentially, Rachel, a state-sponsored network of international criminals. And you've got to think about them that way and understand that's their position in the world. And Donald Trump really is desperate that we don't see where his money comes from. And this is a man who we know was very deeply involved with one of the biggest drug kingpins in America in the 1980s. He risked his casino license just to show his loyalty to that man. He did business with the biggest mobsters in New York. For years, he traveled with a, uh, the son of the head of the reputed Russian mob boss, himself a twice convicted felon. He says, I wouldn't know if he was in the room, even though they were together all the time traveling. And many other criminals he has associated with throughout his life. So it's particularly relevant for us to say, where'd you get the money? David K. Johnston is the editor and founder of DCReport.org. He is the one who obtained this Donald Trump tax return 2005. David, can you stay with us for a moment? Sure. We're going to bring my colleague Chris Hayes into this discussion. And I want to get back to this issue about the sources of Trump's money. And okay, so check that out. Also, uh, MSNBC.com exclusive look at Trump's 2005 tax returns. All right, um, we, we'll deal with this some more tomorrow. I have to do Steve Hood's show early in the morning so I have to get up at five I got to have to finish putting together my top my uh, content for tomorrow and then get to bed but when we look at the Michael Brown situation out of Ferguson Missouri so this past Saturday a new documentary called Stranger Fruit debuted and you may have seen my Facebook live broadcast I did about this uh, earlier in the week but in this new documentary, it debuted um, at a popular film festival in Austin, Texas, this past uh, Saturday. It claims that Michael Brown did not rob a uh, Ferguson, uh, Missouri convenience store moments before he was fatally shot um, um, 
August 9th, 2014. Uh, this instead asserts this documentary because of new footage. It, it was footage that has not been released before. Now, it was footage that the police there in Ferguson, Missouri had. OK, but they didn't release. They only released certain uh, certain footage, I guess, that fit the narrative that they wanted to tell. This footage they did not release. Now, this documentary from director, uh, film director Jason Pollock asserts that Michael Brown's altercation with the uh, with the shop uh, was part of a misunderstanding tied to a possible drug transaction he had with uh, store employees on a prior visit. OK, um, the new surveillance video used in the film Stranger Fruit suggests that Michael Brown first showed up at the Ferguson uh, Missouri Market, Fer Ferguson Market and Liquor, about 1 a.m. August 9th, 2014, many hours before he and uh, police officer, then then the police officer Darren Wilson, uh, got into an altercation. Now, film uh, maker Jason Pollock argues that Michael Brown first exchanged uh, a small amount of marijuana with store clerks for uh, two boxes of cigarellos. In, in his early morning visit that day, according uh, to the documentary, and there was an article from the New York Times about this as well. Now, at the last second before leaving the store, Michael Brown gave the cigarellos back to the store clerks who put them behind the counter, according to the clip. Now, the documentary asserts uh, that Michael Brown left the merchandise at the store to retrieve at a later point. After Brown was shot by then Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson later that day near Canfield Green Apartments um, released a video of Michael Brown strong arming his way out of the same store with cigarellos. His encounter with uh, officer Darren Wilson uh, soon followed. So that was the second video. But what the documentary is saying is that the first video that we weren't shown OK, the first video that um, was uh, from around 1 a.m. is connected with this. And he wasn't stealing the cigarellos, according to the documentary. He wasn't he, he wasn't stealing the cigarellos. It was part of a quote unquote drug deal or a swap or what have you. And he was going back to retrieve uh, the cigarellos. OK, now um, we're going to get into this some more. Uh, tomorrow uh, on on MSNBC, they talked about this. Um, I think it was Saturday, and Yamishal Sendor, who writes for the New York Times, was um, was interviewed about this story. And we're going to go to this clip, okay? Also, the uh, attorney for the um, also, the attorney for the um, bought for the uh, convenience store uh, was interviewed as well on MSNBC the same day. They are uh, disputing the uh, facts in the case. They're, what, they're, I'm sorry, they're disputing the uh, n the newly released video and saying that there was no drug transaction, etc. St. Louis Dispatch, uh, St. STL Today, STL Today, okay, has two articles. First article, Ferguson Market Owner Disputes New Michael Brown Documentary, 
Ferguson Market Owner Disputes New Michael Brown Documentary. Um, uh, you can check that out. And then um, also Documentary Reveals Overlooked Footage in Michael Brown Case. Documentary Reveals Overlooked Footage in Michael Brown Case. Okay. Um, so Ferguson... So uh, Ferguson Market disputes claims as as new Michael Brown documentary prompts new protests. Um, an attorney representing Ferguson Market Liquor said Sunday night that a video clip highlighted in a documentary showed Michael Brown in the store early morning before he was fatally shot by a police officer. Uh, and he was saying uh, that, that it had... Uh, that it had been edited. The video has been edited. Now, uh, the attorney said the documentary falsely implied uh, there was an exchange of marijuana for store merchandise. Um, he um, plans to release video of the interaction in full on Monday. Uh, word of the new video drew a group of protesters um, that night about uh, 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 of about 100 Sunday night eventually the market closed and uh, police had to clear the lot shortly before Monday seven or eight shots were heard from across the street from the market there appeared to be no injuries someone suffered a uh, someone stuffed a rag in the gas tank of a police car but the damage was minor okay so check out that article also stltoday.com stltoday.com uh st louis that's the st louis dispatch okay so in this um there's a clip here from uh msnbc we'll go to this one then the rest of this stuff we're gonna have to get to tomorrow um all right so this is from Thomas Roberts, uh, uh, MSNBC Live with Thomas Roberts on Saturday, March 12th. Um, this deals with new surveillance video shows night before uh, Mike Brown's death. This is actually the morning of his death. This is early in the morning around 1 a.m. Uh, new York Times reporting and Michelle Center discusses new allegations in the case of uh, Michael Brown. And I'm waiting for this to load up. Okay, on Facebook, Joanne's, uh, okay, respond to Phyllis Stevens. Um, Van White said, this is not DJ Envy. Uh, morning, everybody. Okay, let's go to this clip. Allegations today in the case of Michael Brown, the St. Louis teen shot by a police officer nearly three years ago. At the time, police said Brown had robbed a convenience store. But a new documentary reveals a never-before-seen surveillance video that disputes that story. The filmmaker says the video shows the teen swapping marijuana for the cigarellos with the store clerk. NBC News has not verified the filmmaker's claim that marijuana was traded. The video was recorded hours before the shooting. An attorney for the convenience store and 
its employee gave this statement to the New York Times. There was no transaction. There was no understanding, no agreement. Those folks didn't sell him cigarellos for pot. The reason he gave it back is he was walking out the door with unpaid merchandise and they wanted it back. I want to bring in Yamisha Sindor of the New York Times. She reported on the Brown story as it happened. And, and Yamish, before we go over uh, the story and what's been updated by it, I do want to go over a few points. Uh, warnings for our viewers as well, because the footage has not been authenticated by the St. Louis County Police. Uh, it's also been edited by the filmmaker, and we cannot confirm how they obtained it in the first place. Uh, so we don't know, Yamish, why this video has only surfaced just now. Uh, really doesn't answer the question of what happened between the officer and Brown. But how does any of this information confirm or change the context of your reporting at the time? Well, this video is critically important because it goes to how police characterized Michael Brown. Um, three years ago, I was at the press conference where they released the, the video and started talking about this encounter that Brown had hours before his death. And they said, essentially, that, you know, he had strong-armed somebody at this store, and it, got, it called into question whether or not he was someone who was then forceful, someone who might have an intent to then have an argument with a police officer that may have somehow contributed to his death. So really, it tells us that the police in their investigation were picking and choosing how to characterize this person. And while the, the, the head of the county police department, um, St. Louis County Police Department, is saying that it was news to him, his spokesperson is saying that they, was, that they made the calculation not to release this video, this part of the video, because it was something that, um, did, was not, that was not relevant to the case, which of course calls into question if this part of the video at 1 a.m. isn't relevant, if this is, the video is authenticated. A couple hours later, when he's coming back for the second part of that encounter, how is that relevant if this one isn't? Well, it does call into question a lot of those contrasts between what video would be considered uh, germane and appropriate uh, in finding all the facts about this. Obviously, if this film's claim is proven to be true and there was some type of illegal transaction that went on before that was consensual, uh, what does that do to the police and how they reported their interaction with the officer and what happened to Michael Brown? Well, essentially, I mean, Darren Wilson has been cleared. I would venture to say, as a reporter who covered this for years, that that's not going to change, that he's not going to then somehow turn around and be indicted. There is, of course, a civil case, and the family can say on, in the civil issue that the, that the police had some malice um, toward their son, that they tried to essentially assassinate his character, and they could probably win some damages that way. However, really, when it goes to, when, in, in the actual idea of the case, it really doesn't give us much of anything, because if that second part still happened, if he did strong-arm somebody and had this altercation, and then Darren Wilson was given this information and he's then having this attack and of course Darren Wilson claims that that Michael Brown reached into his car was reached for his gun that he had you know that he was transformed into quote-unquote a demon if all that stuff is considered to be true still then Darren Wilson has nothing to worry about and as you point out Darren Wilson uh, the grand jury decided not to indict him in uh, respect to this shooting and it'll be interesting to see where it goes civilly because there's a different benchmark mm -hmm. uh, of the family needing to prove uh, the type of damage is the different proof that it would need to secure some type of civil judgment uh, from a judge. Yeah, and I think, I mean, also, I think there's so many people, this 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 case, Ferguson sparked so much for so mm -hmm. many people. Um, so to have this come out, 
come out three years later. Um, and when we're, we're still, I think, wrestling with the idea of what does it mean to be an African-American man in America? What is what? How should the police treat you? And how do you characterize people um, when they're victims of either or, or even get into altercations with, with police officers? We could have learned all of this and there would have been the exact same characterization of Michael Brown. People would still could still say, oh, well, he was in the, in, in the store and shouldn't have been doing this and shouldn't have been making this exchange. But the idea is that you never get the whole, at least people think that you never get the whole picture of an African-American man in this country. So I think that that is what it was, what this boils down to is whether or not the police can treat him fairly. Um, whether or not, even if the shooting was justified, can you just say, "Hey, this, here's all the stuff that we have about all this kid"? Can we get, can we lay out all the facts? And a lot of people feel like African American men just don't get that. Yumis, thanks so much. I think a lot of people are going to be curious to see about this new documentary. Uh, great to see you, especially in person. We never get to see each other in person. Uh, all right. So that was uh, this past Saturday. Uh, March 11th, I think that was, uh, MSNBC, okay? So check that out. Uh, well, March 12th. It was Sunday, March 12th. Um, MSNBC Live with Thomas Roberts. New surveillance video shows night before Mike Brown's death. New surveillance video shows night before Mike Brown's death, okay? All right. Hey, um, be sure to email us for the uh, if you want information about these. Sunday, March 19th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Um, and that's an online live webinar with myself. Email me at info, I-N-F-O, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com if you want uh, information about that. Info, I-N-F-O, at, at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, I want to remind you, coming up this Saturday, I'll be at Wayne County Community College, downtown district, uh, downtown campus in um, Detroit, 1001 West Fort Street, 1001 West Fort Street. This is for Passport to Africa. It's Saturday, March 18th, um, 1030 a.m. to 430 p.m. Passport to Africa, and they'll have uh, a lot of arts and crafts. They'll have activities for the youth. They'll have performances, African drumming, African dance, things like this. There'll be a lot of vendors. I'll be a vendor. The African History Network would be there. Uh, so we'll have DVDs, documentaries, model lectures, etc. This Saturday, March 18th, Passport to Africa. Visit wccd.edu. WCCCD, Wayne stands for Wayne County Community College. WCCCD.edu uh, for more information. Okay, and um, I have to see if we can get a flyer um, and uh, see if we can put that on the website. Also, okay, breaking news story from the Washington Post. Uh, House of Representative uh, Majority Leader, uh, well, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan concedes. Health care proposal must change to pass House, a retreat from position that bill would fail if altered. After a private meeting of congressional Republicans, the House Speaker told reporters that his proposal to revise the Affordable Care Act would, quote, incorporate feedback, end quote, from the rank and file. Uh, Paul Ryan attributed the change of strategy to an analysis issued Monday by the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, among the details that prompted criticism was a projection that 14 million fewer Americans would be insured after one year 
under the Republican proposal. They had seven years to come up with a viable health care alternative, and this is the best they could do. These are a bunch of lying frauds. They're a bunch of lying frauds. Okay, they, they they had seven years to come up one, and 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 Paul Ryan wants to gut Medicaid. And these are people that have some of the best health care in the world, and and our taxpayer dollars pay for it, and they're trying to uh, do away with Obamacare, replace it with something that is much worse. Okay, they had seven years. They they campaigned on repealing and replacing Obamacare. They had. Um, about 60 uh, repeals of it. And they knew that if it passed the House and the Senate, they knew President Obama was not going to sign it into law. So they used that as a political football and ran on that ran on that uh, platform of repealing and replacing, knowing that President Obama was not going to repeal it. Now it's time to actually govern now it's time for them to actually present a viable plan, and this is the best they could come up with. For 24 million people eventually will be off of health care, 14 million by 2018 by next year. Absolutely ridiculous. But this is what happens when you deal with Republicans. Okay, this is what happens. All right. Um, okay, hey, remember... Um, all these shows are podcasted at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Listen to the podcast there. This date in African-American history, this date in 1947, John Lee, the first um, African-American commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy, was assigned uh, on this date in 1947. This date in 1965, in a nationally televised address, President Lyndon Johnson presented the Voting Rights Bill of 1965 to a joint session of Congress this date in 1965. Uh, this date in 1988, Pope John Paul II appointed Eugene Antonio Marino, a um, black Josephite uh, priest. He, he appointed him Archbishop of Atlanta, Georgia, this date in 1988. This marked the first time a black person had been appointed Archbishop in an American Roman Catholic Church. This date in 1988, uh, uh, Chevin Bowers, C-H-E-V-E-N, Chevin Bowers, C.B. King, better known as C.B., he died in uh, San Diego, California. This date in 1988, uh, uh, C.B. King was the first African-American person to run for governor of the state of Georgia since uh, Reconstruction. You can read more facts about this date in African history in African American history at yanoba.com y e n o b a yanoba.com y e n o b a all right look we got to get out of here hey thanks for listening to the Michael M Hotep show hey, visit our website africanhistorynetwork.com all of my dvd lectures are there we have the hidden colors family bundle pack we have uh, other documentaries spend $100 or more get 20% off your entire order use promo code um March 2017 promo. We have it right there on the homepage of the website. Use promo code March 2017 promo. Okay. Remember, um, and, and I'll be on uh, Wake Up With Steve Hood's show tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., 9, 10 a.m. to Superstation, 9, 10 a.m. to Superstation. We'll be broadcasting here on Facebook Live. You can also um, 
go to 910amsuperstation.com, that website. They have information on how to listen live. You can download the 910am app to your iPhone and to your uh, um, Android phone as well. Hey, remember, on the Michael M. Hotep show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's corrects wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Now black lives just had to die to get a flag down. And my rap has helped the map of Southside Atlanta. Was just a Selma 50 years march in Alabama. Was just in Columbus, Ohio teaching little kids. South by Southwest and Austin teaching sampling. That kind of colleges, I do a lot of interviews. And I'm making some nice figures like a gym or two. And like Sandra Bland, my band be changing lanes without a signal at all. Now you want us to hang? You know some things are substantial, whether or not financial. And playing us with other stuff way up on the mantle. So don't try to adjust your Radio, don't change the channel. We're taking down the glittery lights and just light a candle. Come on. He said, I don't see you at the club. I said, I don't see you at the bank. <laughs>